Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens, and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Healthy disagreement used to be a sign of a well-functioning society. But today, many democracies across the world are suffering a crisis of faith in the values of debate and seeing a trend of people refusing to engage with those who do not share the same views. That's the argument of today's guest on the podcast, journalist and best-selling author Anand Girdhardas, who joins us to explore how societies lost the art of persuasion. Anand Girdardas is a former columnist for the New York Times, political analyst for MSNBC and an author. His latest book is The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age. He's joined by oceanographer and television presenter Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. We're talking today about this book, The Persuaders, by Anand Girdardas. And we have a fascinating conversation lined up here. Um, Anand is the best-selling author of The Winner Takes All. He's a correspondent for The Times. He's written for lots of different publications, all in the area of politics. And he wrote the book, The Winner Takes All, made a, made a big splash. Definitely look out for that. And his new book, the one we'll be discussing today, is all about persuasion. So let us see whether he can persuade us all of the topics in his book. So Anand, welcome to London and welcome to Intelligence Square. Thank you so much for, for having me. So I wanted, like, there is, it's a very rich book. It feels like a book that you've been, it's been bugging you. Is mm-hmm. that the case? It feels like this is a bit like you had to get this off your chest a bit. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it, it's a book that I think grows out of a despair that a lot of us face in this era, which is that we want things to change. So many people want things to change. I can't think of people I know who don't want really big things to change. And yet, Rightfully, many of us despair at whether things can change, whether whether we can move, uh, frankly, each other to change our minds in order to be able to change things. And so uh, I was filled with that despair, sitting in the United States, watching rising authoritarianism, the growing culture of hate, uh, growing disinformation. Uh, it seemed more and more impossible to get the kind of world that we deserve, the kind of world we want for our kids, uh, if these trends were to continue, and I didn't have an answer to how we get out of it. So I, as a reporter, set out to look for people who maybe did have an answer and, and spent time with a bunch of change makers, organizers, activists, educators, uh, scientists, cognitive scientists, occult deprogrammer, because that's where we are, unfortunately, and, and really tried to understand from them how do they think about still reaching people, still moving minds, still winning people, pulling people into coalitions for for change in a time when it feels so hard, a time when our own families are so divided, our societies are so divided, lies and hate fill the air. How do you change people, change minds in order to change things? And I came away with a lot of lessons from them that filled me with much more hope uh, than I had at the beginning. 
Well, it is it is a hopeful book. Like you do, I mean, it's it's a difficult topic to discuss. I'm really happy you wrote the book, partly because it's a great book, obviously, but also because this has been bothering me. Like mm. this, it bothers me that things are so combative. And I got this book, and I was like, oh yes, someone's like thought about this systematically. But just to get started off, let's talk about what persuasion is, because I think there's a kind of interesting scale sometimes between acceptable persuasion and it sort of goes into manipulation down the far end what what is persuasion from your it's a point great, of view great question and particularly my chapter on disinformation really deals with this distinction between persuasion and manipulation i actually think a lot of the elements of the activity of trying to persuade which is to essentially try to change someone's mind um, some of the elements between that and manipulation are common some of the basic activities what i came to understand from writing about cults and disinformation in particular, is that when persuasion crosses over into manipulation, two things are going on. One, the things being said are lies rather than the truth. They're not based in evidence versus based in evidence. That's a simple, straightforward distinction. And the second is when the persuasion is really to the benefit of the persuader doing for their kind of sole benefit. They're profiting from trying to have you change your mind for their purpose. And in fact, what they're offering you is not true. What it, it's, it's not, in fact, for your benefit or the wider benefit. Um, so cult leaders, uh, demagogues, others uh, are in many ways masters of persuasion that is really a manipulative persuasion. And in many ways, the argument of the book is that a lot of the people I would say are good actors in the world today who want more democracy, more human rights, more fact-based policy, more of a response to a planetary emergency, uh, want more of us to be included in having a good life, um, have in some ways fallen short of the bad guys when it comes to a willingness and an ability to try to reach other people. And the book is an attempt to correct that and say, don't don't become manipulators the way a lot of bad actors are, but do become better persuaders. Do try to reach people uh, as they are with a more astute understanding than a lot of movements have about who people are, how they work, how opinion formation happens, and how you can actually summon people to a different set of beliefs, a different program. Well, let's start. So you mentioned already that the state of the world, which which we you know think about a lot, but it's particularly in this area, I think it's particularly a topic of discussion at the moment. You know, as we're recording this, it's just uh, yesterday, I think, that Elon Musk actually took over Twitter and has made these, you know, he retweeted something from a, a far-right conspiracy theorist. And immediately this place, Twitter, like whatever you thought about it, you know, it felt like some kind of safe space-ish for having discussion. And then suddenly... There's this complete, you know, it feels like it could be a complete about turn. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen next. What do you see in this in this moment where we're looking at this and suddenly going, well, are we just going to remove our connection with the world because we don't like the way this guy does things? How what what do what do you see in this moment? I mean, my my previous book to this, my third book, was called Winners Take All, and it was about you know how plutocracy works and. Elon Musk, in many ways, embodies the core element of what I wrote about in Winners Take All, which is people who are the problem cosplaying as the solution to the problem that they are. Elon Musk embodies many of the worst problems of Twitter, the kind of bigotry, just the kind of worst angels of our nature that come out to play on that platform and the disinformation above all. He's a, he's a peddler in all of these things. And so the idea 
that it's not just the kind of fox in the hen house situation, but someone who is kind of the stinking embodiment of everything that is wrong with Twitter. And there's many things that are right about Twitter, none of them involving Elon Musk. The stinking embodiment of its problems is now the policeman of Twitter, the owner of Twitter. Um, and it's very, very dispiriting. I mean, part of you know the larger issue of these tech barons is it's a very small number of highly limited men. You know, I don't, I don't think Elon Musk is a serial killer. I think he's a limited man. I think he's a small and limited man. I think a lot of these men, if you just look at them, listen to them talk, these are men who I think probably up till age 10 or 11 or 12, they were tracking with the other boys, you know, and then at some point, these are men who stopped developing beyond 10, 11 or 12. I've met these people. Like, they're, they're not they're not murderers. They're just, they're boys frozen at 11 who now own multi-billion dollar platforms. And so you have someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who if you just listen to him, like probably never had a, like a great real friendship in his life, like probably was starved for friends in his own life, now in charge of what friendship means for the world. Or you have someone like Elon Musk, who if you just watch him, probably can't have a a, like a, a conversation with someone that's a meaningful exchange, the way you and I have probably enjoyed many beautiful conversations in our lives. He's now in charge of what he calls the town square of public conversation. We have to stop doing this thing where the people who are worst at things become in charge of those things. And that's what happens when you when you live in a, in a plutocratic society. And I think it's going to be a very potentially dark time on Twitter before it gets better, if at all. And it may not. It's a depressing thing to express, but I guess you know people kind of hide from these things because it's convenient and we don't want to talk about it. And so maybe this is the, the event that's going to push all this further into the spotlight. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to pick up on something about, you know, you have uh, many examples in the book of, of, you know, these very impressive and wise people that you've spoken to are talking about experience they've learned over many, many, many years. But it's very striking that they are all on the left of the political spectrum. They're all progressives. They're all, uh, you know, they're people who believe in climate change, who believe in LBGT rights, all that kind of thing. But there are no examples from the right. Now, is that because you think that the right of the spectrum is already good at persuasion? Or is it because they don't need to persuade? What, why is why is the, this the split so striking? I, I never write about everything in any of my books. I know there are these people who write, you know, histories of humanity from turtles onward or, or whatever. Um, I write very bounded books about very specific communities of people trying to figure something out. And this is a book about a certain political world, a world of people who want a certain kind of progress, struggling with a problem that they have. This is a a book about a community of people. It's not about everything and everyone. It's about a very, these people in my book, I got to them separately, but they all kind of vaguely know each other and have worked in intersecting ways. It's a book about a very uh, loosely knit group of people who are, you know, largely uh, political progressives in the American context, who believe in uh, racial progress of a certain kind and in gender equality and climate change, etc. Uh, it's not about how anyone can persuade anyone of anything. It's about a specific community that is trying to build a society that works for all and includes more people and frankly defeats fascism in America right now, struggling with some of the things preventing them from achieving those goals. And a lot of the people who spoke to me for the book were speaking a little bit out of turn in the sense that they were saying things that are hard to say in their own spaces. They were saying things that maybe they hadn't said in a short form space for fear of being misunderstood. But in a book, you can go into depth depth, and your ideas hopefully will be taken more seriously. And a lot of these, these progressives were saying, you know, we need to build a progressive movement for the kind of future we want that is more evangelical, small e evangelical, 
than what we have right now, that is more interested in winning souls and converting hearts and minds and less interested in purity and gatekeeping. And that's a hard thing to say, but it was an important thing to say. So in many ways, this book is not an omnibus uh, thing. It, it's, a, it's a loving intervention in a specific community by a writer who shares the values of that community, saying, if this is the future we want, we need to change our ways to win it. Well, it's often said, I think, you know, the sort of um, cartoon drawing is that the right is pragmatic and the left is idealistic. And that's where it gets stuck because they've all got slightly different ideals. These are the things that you dig into, which I think are, are really important. But you use some phrases I just wanted to pick up on because we can't, you know, cover everything. But there was this thing about calling out and calling in. Explain to us what that difference is and why it matters. Well, I think everyone listening to this will know about calling out because it's a culture that we have all fallen into. You know, I'd be curious if anyone listening to this thinks they have not fallen into it somehow. It's in many ways the culture of social media in particular, but obviously metastasizes beyond social media. And it's a culture of, you know, yelling at people, of finding any way in which someone has committed an infraction and going wild on it. It's a culture of kind of not taking people aside and saying, hey, quietly, hey, you know, you might want to think about what you said in the meeting, but instead going straight to social media and dumping on someone you like uh, and admire and work with, but feeling an obligation to dump on them publicly at lest you be held complicit. I have certainly participated in call-out culture. By the way, I think call-out culture is also very effective for certain things. There's elements of which I think if you look at the rising cries for racial justice around the world, the old approaches of trying to work within the system were quite ineffective. And so calling out abuses of power and things like that, very useful. You know, I think a lot of women have found their voices calling out patriarchy and sexism in the workplace in ways their mothers and grandmothers didn't have the tools to do, and it's been very effective. So there's a lot of power in calling out also. The problem is when our democratic discourse becomes dominated by trying to kind of dunk on people instead of invite them into a the better tomorrow that we want. And so I read about Loretta Ross, who's a veteran racial justice, reproductive justice, gender justice advocate in the US, in her 70s now, been an activist for more than 50 years, really a kind of godmother of the movement for so many people, and has the credibility. No one thinks she's a moderate or a milquetoast, mushy middle person. This is a serious, serious person who has fought serious fights and lived hard realities to, to seek the world she wants. And in recent years, she got very alarmed by this call-out culture. And she says, you know, the antidote is call-in culture. And she defines a call-in as a call-out done with love, which is to say a call-in is not not calling out. It's not keeping mum. It's not ignoring the patriarchy or the, or the racist thing that you saw at work. It's calling out with love. It's finding ways to invite people in to a, the world you want. Now... It's very important to make distinctions. There are some people who are militantly racist and militantly, this is their ideology. They, they're making the comment at work because they actually believe women are the second sex. Like, and you have to be clear who those people are and you need one strategy for them, Loretta says. And then there's a lot of other people who simply were not socialized in gender equality and are a little too old to have gotten the memo in time when they were malleable. And there's a lot of white people who honestly never thought about race until they were 40 years old, right? And now suddenly it's everywhere and there's trainings and there's TV shows and they're a little bewildered. 
right? And there's also people who want to like burn churches because, you know, and, and I think in some ways, Loretta calls this threat assessment, that progressives have gotten bad at threat assessment, making the distinction between the person who wants to burn down your church and the person who doesn't understand what the term white supremacy means, or the person who makes an awkward comment at work about women versus the person who wants women back in the 14th century. Um, both are problems. To be clear, both are problems, but they're different kinds of problems and different scales of problems. And this former group of people who are confused, bewildered, don't quite get it, we need them in our movements. We don't need them driven to the other side. And we don't really want them standing outside in the rain, banging on the door, getting frustrated no one's coming in, and eventually drifting away into the night. We want to pull them in. We need movements that are self-confident enough to pull you in, even if you don't know the terms, even if you don't get it, even if you say slightly awkward things, movement self-confident enough to educate you inside in our spaces. You don't have to be perfect on your own time to only then come in. This leads to what you sort of paint almost as the central dilemma of persuasion for a lot of these movements, which is that they have very strong beliefs, they have a very clear vision of society. But in order to bring some of those people in, they might need to not shout the hard line at them quite so much. And the problem is that then they soften it a bit, perhaps they modify the language, they modify what they say, and then their own side say, you're selling out. You're not, you know, the true believer in the cause. And so, they're, you know, the people you paint in your book are constantly treading this line between what is saying enough that I am making my point and what is saying so little I might as well not be here. <laughs> you know? That's a beautiful, beautiful summary of it. And I think that's, that's, to me, the dilemma at the heart of this book. And so I have a couple things. And first of all, I think that is most powerfully captured in my reporting by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, you know, to use a, a kind of Gen Z phrase, I think her career tests whether it's possible to be all of the things. Can you be all the things? Can you be a movement leader? and an establishment player at the same time? Can you be inside the system and outside at the same time? I think in prior generations, those distinctions maybe meant more to people. I think a lot of people today want to straddle those. I mean, she grew up straddling worlds, identities, um, communities. And this question of can you, can you do both hinges, I think, on something I call the orchestra principle in the book, which is, are our movements mature enough, movements for progress, mature enough to recognize that just because you over there play the oboe, I'm not doing something wrong by playing the cello. I'm not insulting you and your oboe playing by being a cellist. I'm not degrading your work. I'm not saying oboes are not important by playing the cello. It's just that I'm a cellist. And you're an oboe player, and we need both of us, and we actually need a hundred other people playing a hundred other instruments. And while that may seem obvious in the context of an orchestra, I think that's not obvious to a lot of people working in political change right now. And this goes for all sides, from the radical to the moderate, right? So I will say on the environment issue, this may be controversial or not, I think there's a place in the broad ecosystem of fighting. I think there's a place for people who throw tomato soup at paintings. I'm not saying it's right, it's wrong, but in the eco, historically, it's not true that things like that are always bad, a bad idea. Sometimes to make the entire world talk about something for 24 hours, a moral outrage, in fact, the outrage that habitable life might end, if that's what you got to do to make the world talk about it, fine, right? Yeah, I think we would all say in retrospect, if someone had thrown paintings in 1850 
to get the world's attention on slavery, right? Ending it. I don't think any of us today would say, yeah, but they shouldn't have thrown soup at a painting. I think we would say, do whatever you want to a painting in 1850 if you think you're helping to end slavery. I think we also need, on the other end of the spectrum, a 78-year-old grizzled moderate like Joe Biden, who is able, by virtue of being a 78-year-old white man at the helm of America, to make things seem reasonable and make things... To, to push a climate bill through that seems like fine to people because he's able to frame it in this very Americana, we're America, there's nothing we can't do, we can, we can save the planet, in a way that actually a progressive might find it harder to do. And then we need someone like AOC pushing broad goals, not getting what she wants, but through pushing it, influencing Joe Biden by being on his climate task force. And we need activists and we need people, you know, in in media writing very objective stories. And we need columnists writing very tough critical things. We need each other. AOC says in in the book to me, she says the 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 lesson of of kind of organizing or politics is we need each other. And I think too often in these fights there is this weird notion that I play the oboe, and so no one else should play any other instrument. And we have to let go of this. We have to embrace the orchestra principle if we want to get the world we seek. So that sounds like a great idea, but it also sounds like a whole load of culture change. We have drifted into this habit, perhaps partly because of social media and because, you know, 280 characters, you can it's easy to make a short point rather than a nuance, nuance point. And maybe it's because the world is so full of information, just throwing things at us all the time, that actually... All you can cope with is, is one sentence because, <laughs> you know, there's just a deluge of, yep. of everything. So in practice, it's easy to idealise, oh, well, there's a perfect society where everyone kind of listens to each other and, you know, they accept that they're kind of on the same team in general, even if they disagree on the specifics, in order to get things done. What do you do to shift a culture? Do you have any answers? Did any of them have any answers to what can you, other than modelling perhaps a different way of debate, which may or may not get listened to. Like, how do you shift an entire culture? Because that's kind of what you're talking about. Because it seems very easy to go down the rabbit hole of the Twitter shouting. How do you come back? It's a great question. I, I think, in a way, the, the subjects that I'm writing about, the organizers, activists, scientists, and others I'm writing about, are not trying to first shift the whole culture in a direction of higher quality discourse in order to get the world they want. I think they're trying to change how they and their allies campaign in the context of how people really are instead of some idealized notion of how people are. And so while it would be nice to have better discourse, I think there's there are methods that these organizers are using that work with a realistic understanding of people. So for example, the process of, as one of my subjects says to me, the, the process of opinion formation, I think we have in a kind of enlightenment derived idea that it's a process of reasoning. I mean, in, in many ways, you know, I studied moral and political philosophy, including here in Britain, and there's such an assumption that the way people come to their views is like factory workers are coming home and like reading Kant at the kitchen table and then deciding where they stand on Suella Braverman's new immigration policy. Well, although there's a lot of philosophy written about that kind of notion of people as reasoning beings, I think a lot of political opinion formation is primarily an emotional process. And what that means is, it's not, it doesn't mean that people are stupid or unreasoning. It just means that the way a Briton might come to a position on immigration might not be 
studying the numbers of asylum seekers coming over the southern border or not, or might might not be a a kind of um, even deep discussion with friends about the merits and demerits of a particular policy. I think, you know, whether you feel kind of afraid in a moment, whether social change feels overwhelming to you or not, whether you live in a town where there feels like there's enough for everybody or a town that feels like there's not enough for everybody, whether you live in a place like London where you're so used to people who don't look like you or sound like you and, you know, it's fine, it's great, it's fun, the food's better, uh, or whether you live in a small town where you experience that as destabilizing. Those are very visceral, emotional things. They're not you know, brain things, uh, or that part of the brain at least. And I think basically the far right and the demagogues and the extremists, they get what I just said. They completely understand what I just said. And they engage in opinion formation from that understanding that it's an emotional process. And I think broadly speaking, the political left, but I would say broadly the pro-democracy side around the world these days, is clinging to this kind of fantasy that humans are these reasoning beings who are sitting around the kitchen table studying charts and graphs to form their opinion. And therefore they speak in this language of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Like, I understand scientists need to talk about 1.5 Celsius. Why do you and I know the number 1.5 Celsius? That's not how anyone thinks. That's not how any regular person thinks, right? Like, it's an embarrassment that that is the message of any kind of climate movement. Like... The way people think is, are your kids going to have a good life? That's what moves people, right? Are you going to be able to breathe, right? Are you going to constantly be moving houses in the future because there's a fire engulfing each home you live in, as is already the case for many people in California, right? Those are the kinds of things that move people. And the political left often just speaks to people in this language of kind of brainiac language, assuming they're these kind of platonic creatures who are studying the issues. And so in some ways, this book is saying, I don't think we need everybody to have a kinder, gentler discourse. I think we need campaigners for a better world to more realistically understand who people are and meet them in that language, speak to them in that language, and and above all, understand the emotional terrain on which politics rests. It, one of the things that makes me most scared is the idea that the worst, most narrow, hateful, uh, deceptive actors on the world stage understand human psychology better than people who want to build a better society for all. And that feels unsustainable and it feels like it needs to change. It's interesting because what I see as an academic scientist is such a desire to use the science. Everyone wants to say that the science is behind them. So there's this like, people want to think exactly. logical, but they don't. And it's not a new idea. You know, I think Aristotle had logos, pathos and ethos, right? right? You know, exactly. that these three pillars and that one of them is logic and one of them is emotion and one of them is do you trust the person you're talking? You know, this is not new. And yet somehow some number of thousand years later, we still haven't worked it actually, out. I literally write about those three words from Aristotle in my chapter on Bernie Sanders you know, who built one of the most successful mass movements in the American history and, you know, around the world in recent years. And Bernie is so committed to a kind of logos only. And it's a deep moral commitment. He really, at some level, thinks the other things are wrong or kind of lower order appeals. And I spoke to a lot of people who worked for him and worked around him who basically were saying, no, a movement for progress of the kind Bernie tried to lead needs to be firing on all three of those cylinders. So that's a, that, that, from Aristotle, as always, is a great way to understand the problem, actually.
advertising hasn't always had the best reputation. Whether it's playing on our most primal fears, encouraging needless consumption or perpetuating damaging stereotypes, it can sometimes feel that the ad industry has a lot to answer for. But can advertising's immense power actually be used for good? In this new series, produced by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas US, two of Havas's chief creative officers, Myra Nussbaum and Dan Lucy, talk to the people who are harnessing the power of advertising to help people and the planet. In each episode, Dan and Myra will speak to the creatives and marketeers who are using advertising to combat misinformation, racial inequality, gun violence and other blights on our world. Search Advertising Will Save Us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we ask, could advertising help save us after all? Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. So as you go through the book, you kind of explore different facets of, of what aspects of how people are persuading uh, work and don't work. And one of the ones that you come to at the end, and I just, I love the quote, I, I think it came from somewhere else, but um, somebody says that, uh, you know, Martin Luther King wasn't remembered for that speech because he said, I have a complaint, you know, that he was painting hopes he was painting hopes of a better future not saying this is the problem but you set that out that the framing even just the framing of the argument as being almost the thing that gets missed because everyone's so busy trying to launch into the details that they forget to step back and say well what's the first thing people hear and do you see more good examples as time goes on or is it just are we all just is this the bottom and it needs to turn around well i i think that you know that observation came from one of the subjects of the book, Anat Schenker Osorio, who's one of the leading consultants on political messages, and how those of us who want to make change, who want a better world, how we communicate our ideals. And the funny paradox she's talking about there is that if you if you want change, you kind of have two motivations. I mean, there's clearly something about now that you don't like. There's a sense that there's a problem, there's a crisis, there's something distasteful to you about the way things are. But there's also presumably embedded in the idea of change, of the kind of delta of change, there's pr presumably some other state that you prefer. What Martin Luther King did in that incredible speech, and so many of his speeches, was say both things, right? But what did he center 
in that moment. I have a dream that someday my four little children will live in a country where they'll be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So he starts that riff with what the world looks like if and when he wins. And then he's not shy, as we all know, of naming the obstructions presently to that world. What too many of us who I think want the kind of world he <laughs> fought for, even today, what too many of us I think do wrong is to start with the problem, start with the crisis. And often the crisis is such a deep rabbit hole that we actually don't get out of that rhetorical phase. So if you think about climate in particular, it has the aura, it has such a dour aura to it. And look, rightly so, in the sense that we're talking not about an issue, we're talking about the issue that this may be the kind of end of the line for us as a species. That's obviously dour. <laughs> On the other hand, we are trying to invite people, we have to invite people into a vision where we're gonna eat differently, all of us. We're gonna move around differently. We're gonna do different kinds of jobs than many of us do now. We're gonna, our homes are gonna look different. What we do for fun is gonna be different. Now, that's a lot of people to move psychologically, physically, financially. It's a lot of motion. And if we are just saying, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a threat, 1.5, so dangerous, wildfires, this, that, dirty water, all of it true, people are gonna, people clam up. People feel afraid, right? I mean, they may agree that these things are problems, but you haven't loosened them up at all. You haven't invited them into something. You've raised a lot of the kind of reptile brain defenses. And instead, what does it look like? And I've talked to people for the book and outside of it about this on climate, this fascinating thinking happening in the Sunrise Movement and elsewhere. What does it look like? What, what would it have looked like for the climate movement to go down a different road where this was purely a hopeful, beautiful invitation. This was an invitation for us to finally live right, finally live right with each other, finally live right with the planet, be healthier than we've ever been, have a happier relationship to nature, have a happier relationship to our own biochemistry. There's no reason, there's no logical reason why it couldn't have gone down that road or why it can't go down that road. Now, Bill McKibben, great writer on climate, had this piece recently. How come we never tell people about the blimps? In a, in a future where we fight climate change, there's going to be blimps again. Blimps are going to be important for cargo transport and other forms. Blimps are fun. Blimps are exciting. People like blimps. We never talk about the blimps. Instead, we tell everyone they can't eat steak anymore. They can't eat hamburgers. But this is interesting, isn't it? Because I think, I mean, I could talk about this for ages as a, someone who works in, in that world. But the interesting thing, I think, is that the problem that, that climate says two, primarily, one is that um, urgency. If you're painting a view of a nice world, there's no reason to go there today. We could go there tomorrow or maybe the week after that. And, and so I think the urgency mm -hmm. is interesting. But also there's a scalability. And one of the things that you do talk about in the book is there's a lot of individual conversations. There are, you know, especially when you're talking about the cult um, deprogramming, you know, it's about going around. It's about someone's specific view because you can't say one thing that works for everyone. And so it's not a scalable process. How do we deal with persuading on these big societal things when... We need urgency and we need to scale it. How, how do we do this on a big scale? Yeah, I, I don't think painting a beautiful tomorrow, as Anat Shankar-Soryo calls it, I don't think that's inconsistent with a second or a third or a fourth sentence in the riff that is about the speed and is about the, you know. But I long to be invited into a project. I mean, you think about the Second World War 
and the horrors people live through in this city and in so many places. And you read histories of that time, and so many people's subjective experience of it was that they had been invited into a life-giving, thrilling project to defend democracy against tyranny and hatred. And so people whose experience was not having bread or having their homes done in, in their memoirs and in, in their experiences, also remembered it as a time when they were part of something that was good and noble. Now you think about the fight for climate. Do Have we succeeded at all in making people feel any of those kinds of positive things? You think about inflation, right? We have inflation right now because Vladimir Putin did a terrible thing in Ukraine. And fortunately, we live in a time in which the world stands up for the sovereignty of countries, unlike most of human history. And so, yes, things are more expensive right now, and it's kind of hard, but it's for something. Has any leader galvanized us to say, yeah, I'm going to try to fight prices, but also we've dealt with hard things before. Your grandparents dealt with high prices when they dealt with Nazis on the march, and now we have tyrants on the march again. And just like your grandparents buckled down, lived through it, they got some help from the government, but they also just pulled together and did what they could and helped each other. We're going to have to do that again. That's what I would tell people, right? That I don't feel any world leader is actually communicating to people in a way that's not just like, I'm sorry, the prices are high. Like, summon us into something. People are ready to be led, right? People are ready to be called into something. People are willing to sacrifice. People like to be part of things. But you have to do that work of inviting them in and not just lecturing people that things are dangerous, things are bad, things are, things are in crisis. You have to pull people into something that they want to be part of that is... As the writer Tony Cade Bambara says, the, the job of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. You have to make your movement not just right, not just fact-based, but irresistible. So it's very noticeable that there are a lot of women in this book, like almost all the examples you pick on as good persuaders Glad you noticed are that. women. Uh, why? Um, first of all, I think I was looking for the best people working in these fields at political persuasion. And I think a lot of the best people in these fields happen to be women. You know, these are not, it's not a random assortment of people. Linda Sarsour co-led the largest single day protest in American history. Alicia Garza co-launched the Black Lives Matter hashtag associated with building that movement and helped lead that movement. Loretta Ross, you know, perhaps the most important person in the reproductive justice movement in America, and not Shankar Osorio, premier messaging consultant uh, among progressives in America, AOC, the most significant new member of Congress in the history of the United States. So these are field leaders. I don't think, though, it's a coincidence that so many of them are women, uh, many of them women of color, because I think what they are doing is very much their particular approach to persuasion, which combines a certain intransigence about the world you want, and yet a flexibility about how you get there, about how you reach people to get there. I think in many ways, as AOC actually explained it to me very eloquently, maybe an approach particular to women and women of color, whereas, and this is you know where I was talking to AOC about her versus Bernie Sanders, right? These are people who have very aligned political views. They agree on almost everything, but... He's a very old white man, and she's a very young woman of color. And she said something to me about, you know, I just don't have the space. I'm not granted the space by the society 
to stand in front of the mountain of the establishment and kind of yell, establishment bad, media corrupt. I won't talk to the media. It doesn't, it, if I was a 30 year old woman of color, I did that, I would still be a waitress in, you know, in Manhattan. She said, if you're someone like me, you can deplore those systems, you can deplore these structures, you can deplore the establishment, and you need to find pockets you can exploit, was I think her phrase. You need to find cracks to get in. And so I think a lot of these women of color, in many ways, by virtue of being women of color, had to both accept the formidable challenges, the mountains in front of them, and they're, by virtue of being who they are, under no illusions about the scale of what they face, but also by virtue of being women of color who don't take it for granted that these systems are going to be made accessible to them, have found a kind of insurgent way of going about it. And so these are people who, in many ways, turn the reigning theories of persuasion that I think prevail on a lot of the political left in the United States and elsewhere on its head. A lot of the normative thing is, I was having this conversation with Ed Miliband yesterday here about, it's kind of persuasion by dilution. Right? You think about Tony Blair, Blairism, Clintonism, um, persuasion by dilution. I'm going to take a noble ideal, I'm going to add a lot of water to it, dilute it, make it thin gruel, make it market friendly, make, you know, and then I'm going to sell it to people. And what often happens is the people who didn't like you before still don't like you that much, and the, your, your base is now demoralized. What a lot of these women of color in particular are advocating is a opposite approach, where you actually stand boldly and bravely for ambitious things. You don't change your goals, but you find ways to communicate more effectively to a much wider range of people than maybe your own allies have been good at. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I, no one has asked me that yet on the book tour, but it's a, it's a, it was a, a pointed thing about the book and yet something I, I didn't make explicit except for who I chose. And, and uh, it's, it's significant. You're right. Well, it leads on to another point that, you know, one of the things you say towards the end of the book is is that we sort of assume that, you know, whatever, pick your percentages, but, you know, there's 20% on one side of an argument who are absolutely hardline, that's what they believe, end of. There's 20% on the other side, exactly the thing, same thing, opposite way around. And there's this kind of assumption that people in the middle are sort of, you know, it's like a it's like a bell curve. They're sort of, they're somewhere in there, they could be, they sit on a line. But actually, you know, the things you're writing about towards the end suggest that perhaps that's not true. And that seems to be very important because that's the whole point of consensus, is that it assumes that there's some, you know, we're just going to put a circle around some group of people and the bigger the circle is, the more it will include. But you say that's not true. Yeah. And, and, and here, the, the parallel here to some other worlds is interesting. My mother-in-law, Deepa Narayan, is a social scientist who wrote a series of books called Voices of the Poor. And her big finding, if you to summarize it, was that poverty is a situation, not an identity. And the way a lot of us traditionally thought about or talked about poverty was like poor people, right? An identity. It's a situation. People fall in and out of it. If you go to any village, you know, you come back five years later, the people who were rich were now poor and people, you know, it's a flux. Uh, I think we're now talking about the homelessness in that situation. We call it people experiencing being unhoused, right? Because it's a situation, not an identity. In many ways, being a moderate or what we call moderate is a situation, not an identity. And once again, we've miscast it, misunderstood it as an identity. So when you think about being a moderate or a undecided voter or a swing voter, when you think about it as an identity, you do the same thing you do with unhoused people and poor people, which is you think it's just a full, it's a life, it's a, it's a kind of type. And so then what you think is those people exist in the center of that bell curve. They, 
They live in the middle. What they want is therefore the kind of mean between two poles. They want av the average. And so if the Tories are for cutting taxes and labor is for raising them to pay for services, you kind of imagine like moderates want you know, neither increases nor decreases. They just want things kept as they are. Well, this turns out to be empirically false. A better way to understand moderates is actually the same way we should actually properly understand unhoused people and, and people experiencing poverty, which is that they are in a temporary, potentially temporary state of not feeling an allegiance to either of the political poles, either of the end points of the spectrum. They may spend their whole life in that, torn position, often they don't spend their whole life in that torn position. Often someone comes along, an idea comes along, a crisis comes along, and toggles them into one or another worldview. These persuadable voters are basically, as Anat Shankar Soria says in the book, capable of believing very progressive frames for looking at the world and capable of believing very conservative ones. So think about immigration, the border I've been thinking about this country's grappling with this asylum question in recent days. I think we know a lot of people who would just be militantly against any new person coming to Britain. We know, we know those people, they exist. I think we know other people who would say, come on in, We're, the world is better, the more the merrier, right? Those are probably two kind of minorities in the end. Now, are the people in the middle people who just want like a little bit of immigration? I would submit, according to the analysis of, of the Persuaders book, that the people in that quote unquote middle are people who, if you say to them, we are stronger when we draw on the amazing hearts and minds of people around the world, might say, yeah, that sounds right. And who, if you say to them, if we don't have a secure border, we have no country, to paraphrase Donald Trump, might say, yeah, that sounds right. Anant Shankar Osorio calls them the good point people, right? Whatever you say to them, and, and this, I, I really wanna, this, this is not saying they're stupid or dumb. They're actually open-minded in the sense that they don't have what you and I probably have in this conversation, because this is our work. They don't have a fully formed worldview, right? I imagine most of the things you say on the areas you work in are backed by thousands of books you have read and podcasts you've listened to, and right, that, that's, that's what you do, that's what I do. Well, most people are not like that, thankfully, otherwise it'd probably be a kind of dull world. Like most people are busy and working two or three jobs and dealing with their kids who are screaming and, you know, <laughs> grabbing on their legs. And an immigration position is something that has not attracted more than an hour of their attention in the course of the last year. And so then the purpose of politics is not to try to stake out the most median position you can to wow them, uh, or attract them. If this analysis is correct, the thing to do is to suggest that your immigration position, the one you want to persuade them of, is more normal, is what people think around them, is what people do, right? Because they are capable of believing that a strong border is how you have a country, and they are capable of believing that we are stronger as a country when all kinds of people can live among us. And so what you need to do is have every aunt and uncle and coworker, people they trust, because they don't trust the prime minister or the home minister or maybe even the BBC. They don't, a big established trusted authorities are not as trusted as they used to be, but they trust their, their people. And you need those people shouting from the rooftops about 
the view of immigration you want to be normative. And often that will toggle people in. And I, I, so I think that notion, that myth of the moderate, is foundational to the analysis of the persuaders. We need to abandon this idea of the middle and think about how do we encircle people with messages about the kind of world we want. Uh, it's a lot more in a way like fashion than it is uh, like, you know, kind of filling out an essay on a, a test. People, the kind of pants people decide to wear are very much based on their perception of what other pants other people are wearing. And I think it would serve many of us well to realize political opinions are a lot more like that than we may care to realize. Well, that is a great place to finish. So, uh, Anang Gadadas, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, the book is called The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age. And I really do, I, I think this should be read very widely because I think there's a lot of challenging ideas in there. But also there's reassurance and some optimism for the future, which is something we all need a bit of at the moment. Um, so you can buy a copy of the book from your local bookshop. I'm Helen Cheresky, and you've been watching or listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared.